It is a series called Tasting the Freedom that God Provides. Many of us, if you are Christians, have at once tasted your need for Jesus. You tasted it. It was good. And many of us have forgotten that taste. And those of us who aren't Christians yet, we're longing to be satisfied by something. And the book of Galatians is, as I mentioned earlier, it is a one-stringed guitar that talks about how we are accepted before a holy and righteous God. So would you stand, if you're able, and give your attention to the reading of God's Word from Galatians chapter 1. I'll read verses 1 down through verse 9. This is the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Freedom is difficult for humanity to handle. Not all freedoms are as advertised. And your freedom is at stake. That's what the book of Galatians, Paul's very first letter that he ever wrote in the New Testament, written around A.D. 49, is about. And what I want to try to do in the moments we have together as we begin looking at the book of Galatians this winter and spring, is I want to show you the situation, I want to show you the urgency in Paul's voice, and I want to show you the issue at heart. Tasting the freedom that God provides tests your resolve to stay committed to the gospel. So, the situation, the urgency, and the issue. Let's dive in together. The situation. The book of Galatians was written by the Apostle Paul after he had preached the gospel to a group of people and a group of churches in Asia Minor, they had tasted the freedom that they had in Christ. They had tasted what it meant 
to not have a righteousness of their own, but to have their sins forgiven by the work of Jesus on the cross, and to be given a righteousness that is an alien righteousness from the Lord himself, who achieved a righteousness that humanity could never achieve through their self-saving strategies. They tasted it. And they had incredible freedom. They were free. They were accepted by God. But there were some called the Judaizers, those who caused trouble, it says in verse 7, for whom freedom made them a little nervous. And so they reinstitutionalized rules, rituals, ceremonies, and they said to the Galatians, this Paul talk about Jesus being enough is not the whole story. You also specifically need to be circumcised. You also need to partake of the ceremonies of the Old Testament. It's not just that you're accepted by faith, but you need to also do certain things to stay in God's good graces. Listen, freedom for humanity is very hard for us to handle. You see that in modern examples where in the sex trafficking industry, as horrible and disgusting and heinous as it is, people get stuck in the sex and drug trafficking ring, even in Northeast Oklahoma, and they go back to it because they know that there are rules, and by those boundaries and rules, they have a sense of meaning, warped, sinful though it is. Or you go back into our own nation's history, and you think about what happened on January 1st, 1863, when Lincoln gave the Emancipation Proclamation. He was a pragmatist. He wasn't an idealist. For him, it was about helping the North gather the strength that they needed to defeat the South. The Emancipation Proclamation curiously didn't free the slaves on the border states, nor did it free slaves in Union-occupied territories in Louisiana and parts of Virginia. But it freed slaves that were in the Confederacy. And after the Emancipation Proclamation was given, 500,000 slaves left and fled to the north. And 200,000 of those slaves joined the Union Army. And when they left, it greatly reduced the South's economy and it shored up the attrition issues in the north. And what was once a pragmatic decision turned a war into an idealistic war about the dignity of human freedom. But what's curious about the footnote of the Civil War, for example, is that on January the 2nd, 1863, though slaves were free, a half a million slaves fled, but millions did not. They woke up on January 2nd, and they went back to their tasks, for some of them, their owners were nice and offered them remunerations or were kind to them. For others, they left for weeks or even months, and then they came back. Why? Because huma- freedom for humanity is difficult to handle. Because at least they had boundaries, and they had laws, and they had rules. 
by which they can understand their life. This is an old, old theme. There's a book written by a Russian man named Fyodor Dostoevsky called Brothers Karamazov, which some people think is like the, the greatest novel ever written in the history of Western civilization. There's a very famous chapter in there called The Grand Inquisitor. And in this novel, I'm telling you this could to give you another historical example of why freedom for us is hard to handle. In this novel, there's a story of Jesus coming back in the midst of the Spanish Inquisition. And he comes back to Seville in Spain and he stands at the steps of the cathedral and he's healing people. And a 90-year-old priest, it says, with a withered face and sunken eyes, a cleric, a cardinal, sees Jesus and he quickly and promptly has him arrested and then he summarily arranges for his execution. And in the priest's defense, when he's defending himself in the inquisition of Jesus, he defends himself by saying, you promised us freedom. And for 15 centuries, we have proven that humans are incapable of freedom. And so it belongs to the likes of me this 90-year-old cleric says to Jesus, to give people rules and ceremonies and ways to order their life so that they can control their behavior. You came to give us freedom, but we cannot handle it. So the church has reinstituted rules to keep society in line. The theme goes back even further, doesn't it, to what uh, Jason read what Ryan read about uh, us in bondage in Egypt. We had everything. We had food. We had everything provided for us. And yet, once Egypt or once Israel was freed, what did they say to Moses? Take us back. You could even say that our desire for freedom and our inability to handle it goes back to the garden itself, which you could understand the fall of humankind as a kind of degeneration of human freedom, away from the freedom that we have in Jesus toward a kind of self-saving righteousness that we use to measure our lives to earn God's acceptance. This is the situation in the book of Galatians. Freedom is difficult for humanity to handle. And whether it's in the 18th century BC when Israel came out of bondage to Egypt, or it's in the time of the Spanish Inquisition, or it's in the 18th century AD, free, freedom has been difficult for us as God's people to handle. And so you can see the situation in Galatians when Paul comes back and he hears that these people who once heard the gospel have come back into a kind of bondage. And Paul says, I am astonished. I'm shocked. And when he addresses them later in chapter 3, verse 1, in Greek, where it says, oi anatoi galatai, like, oh foolish Galatians, J.B. Phillips translates that as, oh my dear idiots. He's not saying that they were like innately dumb. He's saying that they didn't use their powers of perception to understand the implications of the gospel. 
The issue at st- or the situation at stake is that people have left the gospel of grace, which brings people freedom, and they've returned again to a system of self-saving strategies to find life, specifically circumcision. That's the situation. And Paul comes unglued, and with urgency he writes this letter. In most of Paul's New Testament letters, after it was customary in the ancient Near East, you would say the author of the letter, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, Then you would say, to whom? In this case, he says, to the churches of Galatia. And then you would give a commendation. You would talk about their positive attributes. You would talk about how the feeling that you have about these people, how you long to see them, how proud of them you are. Paul doesn't include any of that. And he breaks the customary form of New Testament epistles, and he just cuts to the chase. Oh, you dear idiots. Why have you left the gospel that we preach to you and turned to a different gospel that's not even a gospel at all? Paul says you've turned your alliance with Jesus and you've allowed these Judaizers to come in and to trick you to believe a different gospel altogether. He comes unglued. And what's ironic here, ironic in the best of senses, and that it would be funny if it weren't so sad, is that these Galatians are Gentiles who take upon themselves Jewish customs with which they're not even very familiar. Because deep in their heart, they long to control their behavior. And they long to have a measuring stick by which they can measure their acceptance to God. Because, friends, if you don't measure your acceptance before God, you cast yourself upon the sea of his mercy and grace, which is what the Bible teaches. You know, there's an old evangelism explosion question many of you have heard. It goes like this, that if you were to die today and you were enter into heaven and the Lord were to ask you, Why should I let you into my kingdom? What do you think you would say? And many people will say, well, because I've been a relatively good person and my good deeds outweigh my bad. It's a very common response to that question. And what frightens me about that question, frankly, is that many of you who are even members of this church will say, well, what's wrong with that question or that answer? What's wrong with that answer is that your salvation is in your own hands. Well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that is that your salvation is dangerous if it's in your own hands. Because if it's in the hands of the bloody Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, you are safe and secure because only He can accomplish before the Heavenly Father what you could never accomplish. But if you try to take it back from Him, It's extremely dangerous. And Paul writes with an urgency where he almost comes unglued. I am astonished that you would leave the gospel, which is no gospel at all, to take a gospel that's no gospel at all. Do not be foolish. Not all freedoms are truly free. And the truest freedom you can have, ironically, 
is absolutely free for you. But you can't handle that. You want to control it, don't you? You want to earn God's merit and favor somehow. You don't like the fact that the gospel is free. And so subtly you begin to believe that though you are saved by grace, you're sanctified. You continue to earn God's favor by your obedience. That is dangerous. In fact, Paul goes on to say that that's not good for you. In fact, it is bad for you. If you are using your good works, your self-saving strategies as a means of your salvation, that's not just bad, it's dangerous because you are leaving the gospel and turning to another gospel that is no gospel at all, devoid of all good news. Are you with me? Now, the situation is that there is a group of people in Galatia, the Judaizers, who are turning Galatia away from the gospel. The urgency in Paul's voice is because nothing is more important than your freedom, and it is at stake here, which takes us to the real issue. The real issue for you and for me. The real issue for most of us is that many of us who become Christians are amazed at how big the cross of Jesus is. Like it can span the gap between my awareness of the holiness of God and my awareness of my sin. And if you could imagine a diagram with me of a cross and two diverging lines that go out from that cross. And as you get older, those lines get further and further apart. And that top line is the holiness of God. And that bottom line is the awareness of your sin. And as you get older, those lines get further and further apart because you recognize the older you get how holy and righteous and beautiful God is. And you also know yourself better and you see the depth of your sin actually getting deeper and deeper and deeper because you're becoming more self-aware of yourself, more self-aware of your need for Jesus. And when you were a young Christian, it was easy to see how the cross bridged that divide. But as you grow in the Christian life, the problem is the cross stays the same size. And there develops in your heart gaps between your first love of Jesus and that cross all of your life staying the same size and your awareness of Jesus' holiness and your awareness of your sin continues to grow. And those gaps get bigger. Here's the question. I, you, fill in those gaps. That's called sin. And we use our obedience to maintain our salvation. When it is a gift, it is free for you. And this is deeply personal to me because the older I get, the longer I'm a minister, the more divergent I see those two lines become. And what I learn is that the only way that the cross can continue to fill that gap 
is through repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. And I learn as I get older that it's not just my bad deeds for which I need to repent, but it is in some ways even more important for me to repent of my righteousnesses. How good of a person I am. The fact that I'm a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that I'm nice. Those of you who know me well might disagree. The way the gospel grows bigger in your heart, friends, Paul says in the book of Galatians, is the same way it grew big when you became a Christian. Repentance of your deadly doings that keep you apart from Jesus and faith. Repentance fills the gap below the cross and faith fills it above it. Repentance brings you into touch with how sinful you really are. And faith brings you into the beautiful majesty and glory and hope of the holiness of God, who with his bloody arms outstretched on the cross gave you a freedom that was for you absolutely free. So quit trying to pay for it by filling in the gaps. Kids, let me talk to you just for a second. Please look at me for just a minute. Do, do you remember, kiddos, when you were little and you learned how to ride a bike? You remember on your bicycle, there are two things on your bike that help you go forward, aren't there? How many pedals do you have? You have two pedals. And those pedals work together, don't they? Those pedals are like faith and repentance. What happens when you get on your bike and you don't pedal? You fall over. When you're young, you have training wheels. When you're young, you have your parents. Even when you don't want to come to church, your parents encourage you and they help you come to church because you need to hear the gospel and let it wash over you again and again. You have the help of your elders. You have training wheels to kind of keep you upright as you move. But as you get older, you lose those training wheels. And one day, someday, you will not be in your own house. You will be an adult like your mom and dad and you will have to pedal. The question is, will you get on your bike? You can't just get on it and try to balance. You will fall over. The way you grow in the Christian life is through repentance and faith, repentance and faith, repentance and faith. That, those are the two pedals that keep you moving forward. Many of you know I like to ride bikes, and I've started riding bikes with Tom, and Tom is a very good bike rider. And he can outpedal me any day of the week. And he also has, he has to stop and like wait for me half a mile down the road for me to catch up. But I want you to notice, what is the difference fundamentally between me and Tom? When we first started riding, you know what the difference was? Like I showed up with all of my like, like I had my suit on and I know that scares some of you to think about the image. And I had like my hat and my gloves. I looked like a good bike rider. Like some of you look like great Christians. You listen to the podcast, you read your Bible every day, you do the spiritual disciplines, which are right and good and very helpful. But if you do not practice the basics of how to ride a bike, repentance and faith, repentance and faith, repentance and faith, you're not going anywhere, as it were. 
And many of you are measuring your life by how good your outfit is. Get on your bike, that is the church, and pedal, and hear the gospel. Repentance, faith, repentance, faith. You ever watch the Tour de France in the summer? What's the difference between a neophyte bike rider like me and the winner of the Tour de France? They are practicing every single day, 365 days a year, to do two things fundamentally. They're getting stronger in two things, the push and the pull of that bicycle. And we as a church, we are called again and again and again and again and again and again and again. And Paul plays this one string guitar all throughout this book, six chapters. You are called to practice two spiritual disciplines chiefly in your life, repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. You can practice all the spiritual disciplines you want. But unless those two are the core spiritual disciplines of your life, you are like a bike rider who looks really good but can't ride worth anything. Get on your bikes and ride. And kiddos, when you ride your bike and you feel the push and the pull of your pedals, you think about growing in your relationship with Jesus. Because whether you're a professional bike rider or you're just beginning, do you know what? It's the same action, isn't it? Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. And as you grow, you find that there are things that are helpful to your repentance and your faith. Like reading the Bible every day. Like making space in your life to reflect upon the gospel personally, which I hope all of us do. But that is to help us grow in repentance and faith so that as we get older, the cross continues to get bigger in our life and not remain the same size. The cross of Christ is sufficient for our salvation. Don't ever forget that. And protect yourself from filling in those gospel gaps by your own works righteousness. The situation in Galatia was very simple. They wanted to learn how to control their own life, and so they instituted rules and regulations to fill in what Paul presumably left out. That is, you need not just to believe in Jesus, but you need to do certain good things to make him love you. That is a heresy, and that is not the gospel. And the urgency with which Paul writes this letter is the most important thing you could possibly read in your entire life. It was Martin Luther who wrote a preface to this book that saved Charles Wesley just by reading it. The book of Galatians is the basics of the Christian life. It is Christianity 101. But whether you are a non-Christian and you're hearing the gospel for the first time, or you're a Christian who's been a Christian for many, many years, we all need to learn it because it's the push and the pull, the push and the pull of learning to practice repentance and faith all of our life. That's how the cross gets bigger. And the issue at stake in your heart and in mine is that we are going to explore what those gospel gaps are this winter and spring and to recognize when we're starting to fill those gaps in and to believe the promises of God or to walk in repentance so that the cross, not your own works righteousness, continues to get bigger and bigger and bigger and be sufficient for you because your humanity, friends, is at stake. 
And it was literally at the stake on Golgotha when Jesus with outstretched arms died for you. And it costs you nothing to have the freedom that's offered for you in the gospel. Forgiveness of your sins and an imputed righteousness that is alien and not your own given to you so that the Father in heaven sings over you. When he looks at you, he sees the spotless, blameless perfection of Jesus because Jesus' righteousness covers you. It's free for you, but it wasn't free for Jesus. It cost him his life. Do not put him back on that cross like the 90-year-old cleric and the brothers Karamazov who was afraid of Jesus coming back because he had been owned by the rules. See Jesus. He is the source of your freedom. When you taste the freedom that God provides, it will test your resolve to remain committed to the gospel. But it is only the gospel that allows you to walk in the freedom that God himself came to supply. And that, friends, is good news. Do you hear it? Let's walk in repentance and faith together. There's no better Christians in the world, whatever that means. You don't progress further. You grow in repentance and you grow in faith. And this gives you a profound sense of humility and of all of how amazing the freedom of God is for his people. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.